So if I tell you that today's lesson is about racism, uh, the topic of inequality, and the reality of sinking into moral decay, I would suspect that most of you are going to guess that, okay, pastor's going to give us a commentary on the daily news. Because, let's be honest, these are topics that typically uh, fill the newspapers or the news feeds almost every single day of our lives. And if I'm honest, I would say that's a pretty good guess, except you would be completely wrong. I'm not going to talk about today's news. I'm actually going to talk about news that goes back to the time of the writing of our lesson. And it's interesting to note that these same topics that people are still struggling with today, still trying to get a grasp on how to deal with these things, and keep failing to find the true source of the problem, they were going on in the city of Rome, and unfortunately, some of these were actually uh, infecting the church in Rome at the time. What today's lesson is actually going to do is we're going to pick up on something that we didn't go into great detail about in last week's lesson. And we've been talking about this new life that Easter presents to us. Not only the promise of one day physically being raised back to life, but the reality of the fact that Easter means that each of us has been resurrected to live a new life right here and right now. And there's a comp an important component to that, and, and one I think that sometimes we're a little bit uncomfortable talking about because we're going to deal with the subject matter of death. Death is not usually a thing that a lot of people like to discuss. Of course, it's unnatural to us. We weren't created to die. Of course, there's a lot of downside to death. But one of the things we're going to learn through this stretch of study is that there's also some good things that death brings about, some virtuous things, or if you will, the value of death. Now, we're going to start through this series of lessons in chapter 6 of the book of Romans. We're not doing the whole chapter, and we're only taking little pieces at a time consecutively, one after another. And in fact, at a certain point, you might go, well, we've heard all this before. This is a bit redundant. The reality is that each of these chunks helps us to get our heads around something new. And part of the reality of what we're about to study is, is I think this is a topic that oftentimes is either misunderstood terribly or because it can be quite complicated, uh, especially as we grow up in our faith life, we sometimes avoid sections like this. They're too hard to work our way through, too hard to figure out. But if we leave them at arm's length, if we don't spend the time to actually get our heads and our hearts around what Paul writes to the early church in Rome, we deprive ourselves of maybe some of the greatest blessings that God has in store for us as we live here in this life. I know, and you know, the ultimate goal of our journey here is to cross the finish line into heaven. And the resurrection means so much for that day for us. But we dare not set aside the blessings that God has in store for us, or if you will, that God intends to bring to us while we live here on this earth. And this section through the book of Romans really helps us to get our heads around that. I think, though, because it is of a complicated nature, and understanding this concept of how Easter changes everything because it changes me and it changes you, we should spend just a little bit of time getting to know the Romans as well as Paul's relationship with them. Then once we have that firmly in mind, we can start into our lesson and unraveling what Paul writes to them. So let's do this. Let's get some basic facts about Paul the Roman church, and what's going on right now. And then we'll have a, a video for the context, and you'll hear about some of the problems, the inequality. That has to do with one of the last points. It was a predominantly Gentile 
congregation. And there was some real jealousy between the Jews and the Gentiles in this church. And part of the fact is, as you work your way up that list, is this is one of the churches that no apostle had actually been involved in starting. Um, so it started out as a Jewish group of people. And while we don't have anything in the Bible which specifically says this, historical evidence seems to indicate this was one of the oldest Christian congregations of the first century. And since it wasn't started by an apostle, one has to go, well, where, where did it come from? The thought is, is that there were Jews in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost who were actually converted to the Christian faith. And so when they returned to their homes in Rome, they took this new faith with them. And slowly but surely, the Holy Spirit used that and blessed that small nucleus group to grow into one of the most thriving Christian congregations. Now, the apostle Paul had never been there. And so he's reaching out to them. He wants to establish a relationship with them. And of course, this is inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit wants Paul to do this, not only for his own sake, but for other reasons as well. Paul's main purpose in writing to them, at least from his own personal perspective, is he desired to do mission work beyond the world in which he had been operating. And you can see the many journeys that he had in the areas of Asia, Macedonia, and Greece. But he had plans to go further, and he hoped he could use the church in Rome as kind of a launching pad to reach out and go beyond where any apostles had been before. Now let's get to the first of those details is the fact that Paul writes this from the city of Corinth. And you can see it's relatively close to the city of Rome. At least it wouldn't have been the worst of journeys. And so the curious question is, well, why didn't Paul just go and see them at this time? Well, he writes at the end of his third missionary journey. And if you're familiar with this journey at all, and we had this as one of the uh, previous lessons, Paul is making haste to get back to the city of Jerusalem because he's uh, collecting an offering amongst the Christian churches to help the Jews, uh, Jewish Christians back in the mother church in Jerusalem. There was a terrible famine, and so he needed to complete that. But he had spent about three months' time in the city of Corinth, which allowed him the time to write this letter, and Paul became aware of one of the Christians who was going to make a journey to the city of Rome, and so he had the messenger lined up. That's how this letter gets to that Christian church. That's how this relationship begins. That's how it opens up this door to dealing with some of the things that the Christian church in Rome needed to deal with, and that's how the Holy Spirit provides to us not only great advice, but amazing insight into our relationship with God and what it means for us right now in this new life. So let's spend just a moment now to get to know better this church. In the city As Paul sat in the double-harbored city of Corinth in Greece, he took some time to contemplate the previous 10 years of his life. Looking towards the eastern harbor, he reflected on God's faithfulness, leading him to preach the good news of Jesus throughout all the lands of the northeastern Mediterranean. The ships in the harbor shifted his thoughts to his anticipated journey back to Jerusalem. For months, the churches he planted had been collecting money to send back with Paul to the Jerusalem Christians who were suffering under poverty. His view over the western harbor turned his mind to all the lands still unreached with the good news of Jesus. The anticipation of bringing the message of Jesus to faraway places like Spain excited Paul. Between Greece and Spain, however, lay Italy and Rome, the beating heart of the empire. If he could only get to Rome, he could build a relationship with the fledgling church that had the potential to become the most important in the world. 
He foresaw them playing a significant role in helping to bring the message of Jesus to the Western Mediterranean. This Christian community in Rome predated Paul's missionary journeys, going all the way back to some of the earliest days of the Jesus movement. When Christianity first reached Rome, it spread mainly among the Jewish community. However, the question about whether or not Jesus was the Messiah divided them. The tension within their community became so great that in the year AD 49, the Emperor Claudius believed they were rioting. He responded by expelling all Jews from the city, regardless of their beliefs about Jesus. This left only a small Gentile Christian population in Rome. With no Jewish influence, these Gentile Christians no longer felt obligated to follow some of the Jewish laws and regulations. Circumcision, dietary laws, along with observance of Sabbath and festivals lost their value and were no longer practiced by the church in Rome. With these laws no longer in place, the church saw tremendous growth among the Gentiles. This Jewish expulsion from Rome lasted until Claudius' death in AD 54. Many of the Jews who were forced to flee the city returned to Rome. For the Jewish Christians, the church that they returned to looked quite different from the one that they left five years earlier. They disagreed with many of the changes that they witnessed. Meanwhile, the Gentiles remained unaccommodating of the Jewish laws and traditions. Ethnic pride ruled the hearts of each group as they demonized those who were different. Jewish Christians looked down on the Gentile Christians as ignorant, unclean, and irreverent, disrespecting the sacred laws of Moses. Gentile Christians, on the other hand, scoffed at Jewish Christians, accusing them of abandoning the good news of Jesus in their obsession with legalistic details. This pride and discrimination fractured the Roman church. Paul recognized the growing influence of this church and knew how important it was for them to reflect the love and unity that only Christ can bring. Because Paul had never been to Rome, he wrote them a letter of introduction first to demonstrate himself as a true apostle of Christ who preaches a sound gospel message. In this letter, he explains the gospel in a way that addresses their tribalism and replaces it with unity, equality, and value for every Jew and every Gentile. Paul reminds them that a person's good works, or even their heritage, does not influence their standing before God. Every Jew and every Gentile is equally flawed and can be reconciled to God in only one way. That is, by God's grace through faith in Jesus. When we apply the Romans effect, walls of hostility are broken down, differences are embraced, and through our unity, the grace of Christ shines forth to the world. So with that as our background and our foundation, now as we turn to chapter 6, I'd like us to keep that in mind and what Paul is, if you will, dealing with as he starts to write some of these deep truths. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So now what I'd like us to do is kind of work through this step by step and see where Paul is leading the Romans and leading us. And so the first thing we would need to do is ask ourselves, why would Paul begin this important section with what I would consider a fairly absurd question? Uh, Paul is saying, basically, is it a good idea, since God loves us so much and freely forgives us, wouldn't it be a good idea then if we sinned more and more? And basically, the more we sin, the more grace we get. And you might think, well, well, that's just a crazy question. What kind of Christian would ever ask something like that? But there, there's a couple things to, to remember. One is Paul had never met these people. Uh, so he wasn't sure how they would react to his letter. And so he's going to ask some uh, questions that lead people down a very logical path of thought. He's going to use illustrations. He's going to draw pictures which are helpful to understand. So let me give, give you a for instance. Paul had never been to Rome, had, and neither had any of the other apostles, and yet that didn't protect the Roman church from false teachers. In fact, there were false teachers who had heard some of the things that Paul was teaching and the other apostles, and they came to this conclusion. If we back up to chapter 3, Paul says, why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. Paul's talking about those false teachers. And whether it was intentional or whether it was a mistake, some of these false teachers had concluded that Paul and the apostles are leading a religion which basically says God's forgiveness, God's love is free, so go ahead and sin. And you and I both know that what they were teaching was the exact opposite. And in fact, if you go back one chapter to chapter 5, you will hear Paul lay out the fundamentals of our faith and what the Romans believed as well. That Paul addresses the fact that the problem in this life is sin. Thank you very much, Adam. From the moment that he rebelled against God and his commands, that doomed us all to death and destruction. And so Paul says that's the problem that needs a solution. Then he goes on in chapter 5 and says, well, God offers us the cure. Thank you very much, Jesus Christ, who came and lived perfectly on our behalf, in our place, and then ultimately was sacrificed to pay for sin. Paul does this amazingly thorough job of describing the concept of God's grace and why it's something that we cannot earn or it's something, and you heard it in the clip, that is not given to us because of our ethnic heritage. Jews weren't better off because they were the chosen nation, and Gentiles weren't better off because they weren't constrained by all of the Old Testament ceremonial laws. What Paul is saying is that God loves his creation, and he's doing everything in his power to get it back. And so, actually, one of the last thoughts that Paul says in chapter 5 is, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Now, you could misunderstand that. It could be like this picture Paul's drawing. Uh, let me use this illustration. We have excellent anti-venoms available today. In fact, they're so good that if you administer those antivenoms in time after having been bit by a viper, a poisonous snake, you will almost certainly recover from any of the ill effects of that poison. So what Paul is saying is, does it make sense that if you have an amazing cure that gives you license then to go out and try and get bit by as many poisonous snakes 
as possible. It's not logical is the point that Paul is making. And hopefully you've gotten your head around the fact by now, Paul was gifted with an intense uh, amount of logic. He would work things through. He would reason them out. And then God would use that to help other people understand these deep truths of Scripture. And hopefully the Holy Spirit's going to do that same thing with us about this topic that we're trying to dig into and benefit from today. And in fact, Paul answers his own question. And I'm not thrilled with the way it's translated. It's translated correctly, by no means. That would be a, a literal translation. But this is one of those, what we call an idiomatic expression of the Apostle Paul. And he's got several of them. If you read this in the King James Bible, your translation will probably say, God forbid. So even though the words themselves don't technically say that, that's what Paul was meaning. That was a common expression in those days. So he asked the question, grace is free, God loves us, we don't have to earn it, so does that mean we should go out and sin more? To that, Paul says, God forbid. No way should we do something like that. And that's the launch pad for this very logical point that he's saying. We've died to sin. And if we're dead to sin, can we live in it any longer? Okay, it's at this point we have to kind of catch our breath and go, wait a minute, we're talking about something different. Let me put it this way, correct me if I'm wrong or not, but most of us were raised uh, in the church being taught the Bible speaks mainly about three different forms of death. Uh, the first one would be physical death, when our body finally gives out and it can no longer function in this world and we physically die. A second kind of death that the Bible talks about is what we often refer to as spiritual death. And that refers to a person who has no place for Jesus Christ in his heart. They are non-Christian. They don't accept that Jesus was sent by the Father to rescue us from the problem of sin. And the third most common topic of death taught in Scripture is what we would call eternal death. Or we would use the common word hell or the description of eternal separation from God as people are punished for not trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Those are commonly the three forms of death that at least I was taught growing up. When I think back to my confirmation days and even my uh, education as far as becoming a pastor, rarely ever did we talk much about the fourth kind of death that scripture actually spends a good deal of time discussing and ends up being the primary focus of this stretch run through this new life series and this lesson in Rome. In fact, I'm going to tell you, it's talked about so little, I can't even think up a good, catchy theological name that's been given to it. And so for the sake of today's lesson, I'm going to give it its own name. I'm going to call it Easter Death. That may not be catchy. I don't expect the Lutheran Church to grab onto that one and go, good idea, Pastor Krause. Let's call it Easter death from this point. For our sake, that's probably the best way to look at it. And what it's talking about is the moment when Easter actually powerfully changes not just our lives, but exactly who we are. This is maybe the best illustration I could come up with before Easter. We were dead in sin. And of course, you have to understand the uh, objective life of Christ, where he came and he lived for us. So you have to understand the subjective part of the end of his life where he suffered for us. And that all becomes a very necessary part of this. But seldom do we shift our focus from the cross and take it to that next step that Scripture does and says, you know what? This all became very real, not just theory, but very real in your life the moment Jesus Christ came back to life. Because where previously we were dead in our sins, 
And though the perfect life of Jesus uh, uh, covers that and his blood pays for that, the moment of his resurrection, we are now dead to sin. I don't think we talk nearly enough about that. I'm not sure we understand it with any great depth. And so that's where this stretch run is taking us. What does it literally mean to be dead to sin? And that's what Paul is trying to explain to the Roman church. That's what was misunderstood as those were representing what Paul and the other apostles were teaching, to be dead to sin. Okay, we had this as one of our lessons, but I wanted to talk about it a little more because it's, it's the perfect illustration. Being dead to sin has a consequential action of also being dead to the law. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves because I know most of us were raised probably having ingrained within us the Ten Commandments, and we should. But the law takes on a whole different purpose and use, thank you, to Easter. Paul uses this illustration of a woman by divine law. God's divine law is connected to her husband while he's alive. That is what God's law says. That's what God's law demands. If she were to spend time with another man uh, in a wifely kind of way, she would be guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. She would be considered by God to be an adulteress. Paul says as much. But the moment the husband dies, God forbid... She has now been set free, not only from that relationship with that husband, but from the divine law which demands her faithfulness to that man. Now hopefully the illustration isn't so complicated that we miss Paul's point. The law has no hold over us because of Easter. The law cannot condemn us before holy and almighty God because not only did Jesus pay for those sins, but now our relationship with God has transitioned because of Easter. It hasn't changed God which leaves only one other conclusion. It has changed us. Easter has literally changed us from what we are to what we are now. So you understand, Paul goes on to basically say, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. That little picture hopefully makes the point. The law doesn't control us. Whereas before faith, before Easter, the law was our master. Now we owe it no due diligence. Now we owe it no service. That's what Paul is trying to tell the Romans. But this too can be confusing. Pastor, are you saying that if we don't have to obey God's law, we can do whatever we want? You see how confusing this can be. That's kind of what was coming out of some of the ideas of the people who heard what Paul was teaching. Paul's saying, no, God forbid. He's not encouraging sin, and neither am I. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that what leads us in our lives what controls our hearts and our minds? What becomes the focus of our existence has transitioned from God's law, which drove us like a slave master, to the free grace of God and the love God has invested in each and every one of us, and Easter is what has made that possible. The law, whereas before faith and before Easter, was simply not only the master of our lives, but if you will, the thing that controlled our nature, Paul is trying to teach these Christians, and that's what we're wrestling with, we're now free from that. You see, Easter doesn't just change our outlook or our view of the law. Easter actually changes our relationship with the law. Whereas we're born with a natural relationship with the law condemning us and ultimately sending us to hell if it isn't paid for by the Lord himself, that has changed for the Christian life and the Christian heart. Now I know maybe this is, it's not sinking in or it can be confusing, because I'll be honest, I'm still wrapping my head around this, 
And I've been doing this for a while, and I've been working through these lessons, and I'm trying to find the most accurate and the most precise way to talk about what we normally just throw into the category of sanctification. But I think if we just throw that theological term out there, we're, we're missing the point, and we're not really appreciating what Paul's trying to teach us. And so what I'd like to do is just take you back to what the Holy Spirit has Paul do and how he connects this transition in our lives and in our very natures to the sacrament of baptism. And I'm not going to get into some big us versus them discussion, but you're probably well aware of there are many religions which say baptism is only a symbol or it only represents. And it's taught in such a way where, where human beings are making some form of commitment to God. And unfortunately, when you see it in that light, you empty these verses of their meaning, and you miss the point of what Easter does uh, to our very nature. Baptism is a powerful sacrament, not because the church says so, but because the Lord brought his powerful word to it and, and changed what was a symbolic custom amongst the people of the day and actually changed it into this powerful change agent for our lives. So Paul says, we were basically put up on that cross with Jesus through baptism. When he was dying to pay for our sins, at the very same moment we were dying to sin. It no longer had to own us or master us. And I thought maybe the best way to drive that home is to just do a little bit of catechism review. Maybe you remember there are four different parts. We're just going to talk about the two that are applicable to what Paul says today. The blessing of baptism. What does baptism do for us? Baptism works forgiveness of sin, delivers us from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation. Baptism does that to us and in us, to all who believe this, as the world and promises of God declare. What are these words and promises of God? Christ the Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Baptism is one of the tools that God uses to make all of this happen. Not just an eternal perspective. Okay, you're baptized, which has given you the gift of faith or continues to strengthen your faith, so one day you'll enjoy this amazing relationship with God. Paul is actually telling us baptism is so powerful, it changes that relationship right now because it changes us right now. And if that wasn't enough, Paul goes on to talk about the other important part of the whole baptism equation. And it's interesting that when Luther decided to write the summary of baptism so fathers could teach their children about these most blessed truths, this very verse became the proof passage for what he is saying, and that's why I didn't include it on the end, St. Paul says in chapter 6, because it is in our text. So what does baptizing with water mean? Baptism means that the old Adam in us should be drowned by daily contrition and repentance, and that all its evil deeds and desires be put to death. That's what we would call dying to sin. Then he goes on, it also means that a new person should daily arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. Where is this written? Well, we are therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Part of, I think, our challenges is because these verb forms are put into what we would call possibilities. While baptism truly works these things in us, we do have a part to play. Once we're given the gift of faith, the Lord not only expects, but he empowers us. He invigorates us. Dare I say he resurrects us to actually be capable of doing things in our life that at one time we were incapable of doing. 
Now let me tell you where I think the main confusion for us lies, and why so often we probably avoid going into sections like this, even though they yield so much spiritual fruit. Truth of the matter is, this is hard stuff. And if we don't keep our wits about us, we do get the wrong impression. We go home thinking, wait, God loves me. I can do whatever I want. Well, if we only looked at it from the old man nature, that's probably how we would conclude things go. But Paul says we don't. We've been reviewing this topic again and again because it keeps coming up as part of our studies. And I think we're all pretty clear on that once we're given the gift of faith, we have not one but two different natures. We always maintain the sinful old Adam, the sinful nature we inherited all the way back through our fathers from Adam himself. And that shows us one of the virtues, one of the benefits of physical death. When we finally physically die, that nature is stripped away and we'll never have to deal with it again. In eternity, you will never have to stand there and go, should I or shouldn't I? You won't have to fight with yourself. And thank God for that day to finally come. I can't wait for the moment when I face a situation and part of me is whispering to my heart, go ahead and do what you want because it feels good. Only later on after having committed a sin to feel like the worst person to walk the face of this earth. I am so looking forward to the day when we can every moment of our lives live in that freedom where the only thing we can do, the only thing we will do is exactly what God created us to do, to love and serve him with our entire heart, soul, and life. There's also the reality, and we've talked about this at length, that there is this new man nature, the faith nature. It's a new part of us, or dare I say a resurrected part of us, that comes after the gift of faith. Now here's where I believe the confusion comes in. I think we tend to look at these as static states of being. The old Adam is always what the old Adam is, and the new man is always what the new man is. And they always maintain the same level. What if I were to tell you that that's absolutely false? And that the Apostle Paul is teaching the Romans and us that. That we are capable of lessening the influence of the old Adam in our lives. And we also play a part and have a responsibility, having been given this gift of faith, to encourage and put to use this new man. If I could use an illustration from the world around us, it would go like this. Most people only pay attention to the final product or the success of an entrepreneur. They say things like, I can never be like them or they got lucky. But what most people don't see is what they had to overcome. All the struggles, the daily rejections, the heartaches, the betrayals, the rumors, the criticism, the empty bank account, those lonely nights trying to make a vision a reality. The only difference between the one who quit and the one who didn't quit is that the one who made it showed up every day. They worked hard every day. They hustled every day. They improved every day. They did all this even though they thought of quitting every day. And eventually, they became who they are today. If you want to be a successful athlete, if you want the best out of whatever opportunity you have been given, then you and I both know it's something that you have to work at every single day. Day. You just can't put in a 50% effort. You can't just try now and then and hope somehow magically everything turns out great. Truth of the matter is, is sometimes I think we confuse justification with sanctification, the part where God does everything for us, and we get so comfortable with that, and we should, don't misunderstand me, 
sometimes we apply those same principles to our lives of sanctification. Like, because that's all done, so this should be too. But that's not what God teaches. That's not what Scripture teaches. Let me give you an illustration. For the sake of full disclosure, this isn't my own illustration. I'm trying to get my head around these things. I'm reading this interesting book. Maybe I'll share it with you someday. And this is an illustration that it uses to try and describe the sanctification process. Uh, but I'm going to make it my own illustration as well. I still remember the day that my wife delivered our very first child. His name's Caleb. And I can uh, still remember both the nervous and excited feeling I had as the nurse handed me my first son and he was in my hands. From that moment on, I knew I was always going to be a father. And there's nothing that could ever change that because here was evidence of that fact and here was my son. Sanctification is kind of like that. Either you are a Christian growing in God's sight or you're not. Just like a father. You can't be half a father. Either you are or you aren't. And holding that son showed me that. But if you had asked me on day one, what does it mean to be a father? My guess is I would have given you some theoretical answer, some very shallow explanation of what I thought a father should be. But now as I look back, that answer would have been completely and totally clueless. You see, while I was a father from the moment my son was conceived and born into this world, I'm still growing to understand and become what I hope a father should be. And it doesn't just have to deal with my children, the changes that they go through in life, their own maturation process, how their lives go. It also has to do with the changes in me and my maturing process as a father. If you asked me today to answer what it means to be a father, it would be a much deeper, a much more complicated, and dare I say, a much more frustrating answer than that very first day when I held Caleb in my arms. You see, while I've always been a father from the moment he came into my life, I continue to grow in my role as a father as I understand it better and hopefully as the Holy Spirit guides me in being what a Christian father should be. That's how sanctification works. That's how this new life works. And it begins with, if you will, death. And that's what Paul is trying to get across. Before we can actually live what God created us to be, we must first die to ourselves, to sin, and ultimately to the control of the law. No, that doesn't mean we can choose to sin and God doesn't care. But it means our relationship with God, with his law, and even with ourselves goes through this transition. This has to do with the other passage we had from the Apostle Paul. And why I said it was, it's a bit of an application. And it's all in this word transformed. And I'm going to use an illustration much like Paul. And since we've used hamartia for sin so much, it's a good example. Hamartia, to miss the mark. We don't measure up to, to God's holy law. This word translated as transformed literally is a renovation. We are all a renovation project to God. And it's important to note that it is in the present tense, not the perfect tense or one of the other interesting tenses from this language. It's not a completed action. It is an ongoing action. God continues to renovate us every single day. And that's why our baptism is so vitally important. Not just the day we are baptized, but it continues to empower us to be part of this project that God is changing and making us new. So I'm guessing no Lutheran pastor has ever told you this, but if you should happen to sin, 
Stop beating yourself up so much. No, I'm not saying sinning's okay. No, I'm not saying go ahead and sin. What I'm saying is, is you need to start seeing the law from a much different perspective than the way I think most of us have been taught. If you were like me, it was ingrained in you that the moment you sin, the shame and the guilt just come pouring on you. And it's like the devil's there just going, what a failure. Well, there is that aspect to it. But let's consider it the way Paul teaches it to the Romans. He says sin is the problem. That is the reality. Confess it and move on. That sin or the law that's behind it does not motivate you. It does not change you. And so for all of the times you get it right, we pat the Holy Spirit on the back. And for all the times we get it wrong, we acknowledge that we're still struggling with the sinful nature, but that amending our sinful life, that desire to grow to be what God created us to be, can be nurtured and grown. So it predominates how we think and how we act in this life. Now, to make it clear, this is a two-step process. If we ever grow comfortable with sin, if we ever commit sins and they don't even bother us, step one is, is we need to go back and die again. We need to go back to the cross, recognize what God had to sacrifice in order to pay for those sins, and then leave those sins at the foot of the cross and walk on in the newness of life. And then step two is we need to go back to the empty tomb and remember it not only changed us, it changed our relationship with sin and with the law itself. And that's a concept that we're going to dig deeper and deeper into in these next couple of weeks' lessons to understand what it means to have a different kind of relationship with the law. That it's not this club just beating us over the head, which we tend to use. It's meant to, to be this guide to help us. I want to serve God. My heart cries out to serve God. And the law is there to tell us, well, then do this and do that. But it doesn't motivate us. It doesn't drive us. Step two is to go back to that empty tomb and be reminded that we are God's restoration project. That when he was raised, so also were we raised in the newness of life. I'm going to offer up just a couple things that maybe we should start thinking about, not only as individual Christians, but as a church to help us in this growth process and to fully benefit from the blessings that God has in store for us. Might I suggest that we be dead to judging one another's faith? Because despite the fact that we freely talk about God giving up his son to pay for all of our sins, there is a part of us, and that's a sinful part of us, that still likes to judge one another. I, I hear it, and it's one of my pet peeves, when people use the phrase, a good Christian. Okay, can you explain to me what a bad Christian is. Haven't both been washed clean in the blood of Christ? Haven't both been raised again to the newness of life through Christ's own resurrection? Do you see how our human minds work and how the devil tempts us to still want to, if you will, use the law as the gauge for one's value and worth? And God says nothing could be further from the truth. You are the most precious thing that I have because my son has made you such. Instead of, if you will, allowing the devil to use us against each other, wouldn't it be more productive if we actually started to pull together? And you see, that's why it's so perfect to get this from the book of Romans. If you continue to read on through this book, you will find they were at odds with each other, the Jews versus the Gentiles, and Paul comes up, by thanks of the Holy Spirit, to say, you know what, you're the body of Christ. One part hurts 
we all hurt. One part succeeds, we all succeed. Why isn't that something that, if you will, motivates and drives us even in our spiritual lives today? What would be so wrong if all of a sudden we decided, you know what, I'm going to be held accountable for my faith. And you said to me, would you please hold me accountable too? Not judge, but actually if I'm spiritually struggling, I can have the confidence to come to you and say, hey, I am fighting this sin. Will you pray for me? Will you help pull me along so that together we actually become exactly what God wants us to be, what he created us to be, what he sent Christ to this earth to make us? That instead of looking down one's nose and going, well, you're not a very good Christian, or you shouldn't be struggling with this sin, you should be so much beyond that, the thought is, you know what, I get it. I got other areas in my life where I struggle. There are things that I'm constantly doing battle with. You need my help, I'm there for you. I'm praying for you. I'm going to take your hand and pull you along if you need it. That's what the body of Christ is. That's why this letter was written. So that instead of being at each other's throats over the law, the resurrection frees us from all that and gift wraps to us an amazing new life. We are just scratching the surface. And I pray to God you don't grow, if you will, impatient with his study. And, and I thank the good Lord that he's given me the opportunity to bring you along on a personal ride of my own. Because for too much of my, my Christian life, I have failed to not only understand, but to truly appreciate what Easter means. I know what it's going to do one day in the future. But what is it doing for me right now? What is it doing in me right now? It's raised me to new life. But first, it teaches me the value of death. Imagine you are the creator. The earth is your creation and you are its maker. Everything is yours. The planets, the stars, the fish in the sea, the grass in the yards, it all belongs to you. You own everything and there's no limit to your being. But your most prized creation isn't seen. You want to free them, but they don't want free. They think they know what's best, but they're actually depleting. Ignoring you is self-defeating. Yeah, you could get their attention. You could show up with thunder, appearing from the sky with great signs and wonders, crushing them with your power. But no, you choose love. Love to draw them near. Crazy, awesome love. Love instead of fear. See, they will soon die. But the gift that you give is eternal life. So after their death, they can live. They can live. But to give them that life, you give the greatest gift of all. Someone to be punished on behalf of their fall. Someone to take the blame. Someone to take the shame. Someone who brings freedom and breaks all their chains. You could give them yourself because your power is great. But your love is so deep you send your son in their place. Your one true son. The perfect one. Only begotten, never forgotten, the greatest gifts you could give. Any father would die for his son to live, but you, you are much different. 
See, your love is the beginning, your love is the finish. All sin will be diminished and people will be replenished. The greatest gift you could give and you did it with love. A love beyond the wildest dream that was ever dreamed up. Crazy love. Crazy love. Crazy, awesome love.